Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Reading the first seven verses. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I never thought that I would preach from the book of Revelation. Uh, I've always been uh, a little confused by it uh, growing up uh, with the background I had. Uh, Back in those days, you always had to wait for the movie to come out before you could preach on it so you knew what Kirk Cameron wanted you to say about it. But but with this book, um, this is going to be... uh, For a book this uh, difficult to work through, this chapter is quite straightforward, and what we're going to talk about today is going to be quite simple. Um, What we have is we have a direct word from Christ to the church of Ephesus. This is Christ speaking to the church. Now, all throughout Scripture, obviously, we have Uh, the inspiration of Scripture, all of this is Christ's words to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. But there is something interesting about the fact that we're getting a direct quote from Christ to a church. And I think that's significant. What's interesting is that this is the church of Ephesus. Now the church of Ephesus is uh, like one of the most, like if you're going to put together a dream team, Church of Ephesus is that dream team. 
I mean, it's in one of those, it's in one of the big cities, uh, lots of trade, lots of money going through there. There's a lot of idolatry going on. This uh, city was famous for the Temple of Diana, so you have like one of those uh, places where people have gone to uh, commit horrible sins. Now there's a church present. You have to remember, this is the church that uh, Paul visited and then left Timothy there. And then he writes to Timothy how to run Ephesus. That's where we get First and Second Timothy. This is where we get our instructions on how to be elders and deacons, how a pastor is supposed to be, what a congregation is supposed to be, how we are to participate in prayer. I mean, all these directions are given to Timothy. And Timothy, um, unlike Paul, was um, young and uh, had a better way of speaking. Uh, People were attracted to him. And this was the church. Um, I'm trying to think of what would be a good comparison to it, but any church I mention, people are either going to like it or not like it for different reasons, so I can't really do that. But, um, but you, have to, you have to understand, this is not like a mega church, right? It might have been a big church, I don't know, but it wasn't like a mega church that uh, had like, um, you know, 700 pastors and, you know, one pastor was crowned the king pastor, and he would come and give his lecture on a Sunday and then disappear for the rest of the week, and uh, you know he was transmitted to all kinds of other campuses and all these sort of things. Um, this was one of those churches that were uh, the church that people look at and say, we need to be like that church. Um, I find that important because what we, what we see at the very beginning of this is they're being commended. And there's good things going on. If you look at verse 2. Now we know, uh, just to start out, uh, with the first verse there, it says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Okay, This is typically um, a poetic way of referring to the head pastor or those that are in authority at the church who are represented as the angel. And this is written, or this is spoken by the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who, walk, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And this is to uh, demonstrate that this is Christ himself, the one who walks among the golden lampstands. There's, there's poetic language going on here to identify Christ. But then to talk about how he walks among the churches. Uh, what is significant about this is the Holy Spirit found it important for Christ to be identified as the one who walks among his churches, who is present, who is there. Now that's going to be significant. I want you to understand this isn't a work that Christ is doing uh, by remote. This is something he is doing, uh, that he is among his church. He is tabernacling with his people in the churches. And this is what he says. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. So what what do we see in this first part? In this first part, 
they're being complemented with the work and labor of promoting the knowledge of God to others, the gospel. And this is not a shallow knowledge. This isn't, uh, I don't know how, what kind of backgrounds you grew up in, but there was a movement for a long time in the churches where a good church was a church where they would go through the gospel message every Sunday. And I don't mean an in-depth understanding of the gospel message. It was, if you were an unbeliever and you came through those doors, they would give the gospel message in a very simple way, and they'd do it every Sunday, every Sunday, every Sunday. And the idea was that this was the core of, of what church was about. Uh, meanwhile, the people in the pews did not grow very much because they were hearing... They were hearing a salvation message on a very, I don't want to say shallow, but very basic level, uh, where the preacher was preaching almost solely to unbelievers in the pews, whether the unbelievers were there or not. Now this was in reaction uh, to a lot of liberal churches that felt going deep in the Bible was a way of being able to question the Bible and and then it was only for like the academics, and so they were questioning the Bible, they were questioning all these things, and they were going back to the basics. This was a reaction, if that makes sense. So I'm not saying that um, it was terrible, but what I'm saying is it left the congregation quite uh, shallow in their understanding of the gospel. But this is not saying that. What this is saying is, not only are you promoting the gospel, but you are doing it in a way that keeps finding the depth and, and the breadth of the gospel. How do we know this? Because it, it talks about that they would not tolerate evil men, that you would put them to the test, and there would be these men that would come along saying, I'm an apostle. And it wasn't something that was uh, obviously like, okay, there's no way this guy's an apostle, but it was subtle. And there were, there were teachings that seemed quite deep, and so you had to do some really strong work to see if they were a, an apostle or not. There was theological depth going on here to figure out and put these men to the test. And this was brought out in 2 Timothy when it talks about false teachers, even in the church. So this gets even uncomfortable in the church. It's not like you're talking about false teachers that are you know, in New York City. You're talking about false teachers that are right in front of you, that have been communicating with the other congregants with very sly and very persuasive ideas about, about Christianity that now you have to undo from the pulpit and amongst your elders to try and stop this. This takes a sophistication to their understanding of the gospel. That this was a church known not merely for promoting the gospel, but having a depth to it. Having great teaching going on in the, in the church. And so they're being commended for this. right? This isn't just you guys are are uh, you know, teaching too much, or you're, you're going too deep, you're being too academic about everything. This is a compliment. 
right? And it's not just a compliment from someone who's noticing it uh, in the church, uh, but this is from Christ himself saying, this is great. I am complimenting you on going into the depth and the breadth of, of my gospel and laboring in it and being uh, uh, persistent at it. You're toiling at it and you're, you have perseverance in it, even though the world around you does not like it. And so this is a compliment. They, and, and you've even found some of these people that have claimed to be apostles as false. This is a compliment. And then it goes on to say, and you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. I mean, wouldn't you want Christ to say that of our church? I mean, think of the compliment that's going on here. If Christ were to come to Trinity Presbyterian Church and say, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and it's great. You have been persevering for my namesake and you haven't even been weary at doing it. You guys have been putting on triple B's to try and educate the men. You have been putting on men and family to try and educate the family. You have been putting on Sunday schools to try and educate the people. Your preaching has been in-depth and, and godly. This is great. I mean, this would be the kind of compliment that those that care about church would want to hear, right? Now what's interesting is the kinds of things as you're growing up, when you find out what's important and what's not important. My little ones uh, are finding this out, right? You have an old cell phone from, you know, 2009 or something like that, that no one, you know, is now just become a brick. It does no good to anybody, you, just, you still have it. It's probably giving us all cancer, but no one knows why. So you have this thing, and the kids play with it, right? It's their little toy, and uh, it's this useless thing, and they're like playing like they have a cell phone and things like that. And that's fine, but then they grab our cell phone that we have now that costs a lot of money and that we are paying monthly to be able to use, and they grab it, and they want to use it the same way. And we go, oh, don't touch that. Right? Now to a kid, they're thinking, okay, this brick that doesn't light up, is okay to play with, but the cool brick I'm not allowed to play with. And they get that look of su surprise, like, what's okay, you know? Because they're, they're going into a world where they're discovering what's important and what's not important. And you get that look of surprise of, well, why is this important, right? And we do this, you know, with, with lots of different things when we're trying to get our kids, you know, caught up to the rest of the world. And... and Part of it's, I'm sure, our fault. We probably shouldn't let them play with old cancerous bricks or anything. But uh, the point is, they're still learning about what's important. And it's interesting to see the looks on their faces when they realize that something's important that they didn't get. And so here, if you could imagine the Church of Ephesus is hearing this compliment that they've been working hard on, which is educating their people, right? And then it says, but, verse 4, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now this, this terminology 
uh, is actually quite strong. I have this against you. The idea is being against. I have put my face against you for something. And it's not just that. He goes on. Uh, I want you to remember, because you have lost your first love, I want you to remember from where you have fallen. You're like, fallen? Why is he so upset about this? And repent. Do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will, will remove your lampstand. I want you to understand how the contrast that's going on here. We went from probably doing way better than other churches. I mean, if you look at the compliment here, and you look at the other churches in Greenville and, and Spartanburg, and you look at the wasteland a lot of churches have become, where you come in and they have worked harder on the coffee mixture that you get as you come in than they have in the preparation for the 15-minute sermon they give you after the great rock concert. Right? Now, this isn't about music. What I'm talking about is that the entertainment industry has uh, sunken into the church. And so we have lots of churches where the entertainment is very important, and we're really careful about boring you with our sermons because if we do that, we might lose some people, right? And so you look at the world around you and you see these, these churches that are prospering and doing really well. They have, um, and you look at the way they have constructed it, and the way they have constructed it is to entertain, is to get people in the seats. And even the way they construct the tiny little sermon at the end is they, they make sure the words don't criticize too much or don't get into your face too much. And using, using passive voice instead of active voice, instead of saying you, it's like, well, there are people that. And we've got to be careful, right? And they're, and they're very careful to, to treat everyone with, with you know, these very careful ways so that no one's offended, no one's upset, but they really enjoyed the entertainment and the coffee was really good. And, and I, was, uh, I was in, uh, where was I this week? Uh, Seattle last week. Uh, I was in Seattle and I was speaking at this conference at this gigantic church. It was just ridiculously huge. This was their choir loft. Uh, I kid you not, <laughs> it was insane. And uh, they had a coffee shop. And I foolishly thought, if it's in a church, the coffee would be free. <laughs> that was not the case. <laughs> I, was, I was kind of offended. I was like, I came in there like, ooh, coffee, and you could choose anything you want. You can, you can choose anything you want. But there's prices. And I thought, that's insane. Do they make the, I mean, if you're a visitor, you're like, ooh, nice, oh, I got, oh I'm paying. Uh, anyway. I was a little turned off by that. If I was, you know, a cool cat going into a church, I would be really upset. So anyway, uh, they had a coffee shop, and it was a nice-looking coffee shop. And um, the way everything was constructed, uh, the pastor was, I don't know if he was, one of the pastors uh, was telling us uh, that they, they had this done 
in a special way, the very setup of it. So there is no foyer. You walk in and there's the seats. And they, you know, there's a very important reason why they do that and, and um, how the coffee shop does have an enclosure so you can shut the door and order during the service. They even have a place where you can, um, you can even have a light breakfast while the, while the screen is on. You can watch while you have a little... It's true. Uh, while you're having your a little a little light breakfast with your wife and continue with the the worship, whatever that means. And so there's all these kinds of churches everywhere. You'd be surprised uh, how user friendly these churches get. And uh, and here's this church of Ephesus that's still trying, right? And it's doing well. It's it's getting in the depth and the breadth of the gospel. It's it's uh, trying to get their people to understand the word of God. But, Christ says, I have this against you, that you left your first love. And this is so important to me that I consider this a fall. You have fallen away. In fact, this fall is so bad that I expect repentance out of you. And if you don't repent, I want you to see this wording here. It doesn't come across in the English as forceful. It says, I am coming to you. If you look in the, the, the way the Greek grammar has it, the, really the, the force that's behind it is he's saying, I'm coming for you. I'm coming after you. Um, the difference between this is like when, my, uh, when Jude is in his room, and he's doing something, and uh, maybe I'm, he's going to bed, and I say, I'll be right there to tuck you in. Right? That's not this. This is when Jude does something, and I said, I'm coming over there, if I hear that again. And what does that mean? That means I'm coming for him in a way that's punishment. right? And what's the punishment going to be? The punishment is, I'm removing your lampstand. The idea here, here is, I'm going to unchurch you, is this idea. I'm coming for you, and I'm going to remove your church from the rest of the churches. I'm going to obliterate your church. Um, which might mean something like, I am coming to your church, I am scattering your people to other churches, and this church will be no more. Now you think of that kind of language. I expect you to repent. If you don't repent, I'm coming for you. This is Christ saying, I'm coming for you, and I'm going to obliterate your church. Your people are going to scatter to other lampstands, and this lampstand is going to be taken down. I'm going to unchurch your church. Now that sounds pretty, pretty serious. That sounds like he's upset that he wants to destroy our church if we don't change. What did we do? And what we did was, um, what he had against them was this. You have left your first love. Well, what does that mean? He doesn't even explain it. He says, you left your first love, you know what that means, and this is what's going to happen if you don't repent. So what does that mean? Okay, so we have Christ speaking here. The same Christ who was asked, what are... What is the greatest commandment of the commandments? And the greatest commandments that Christ, uh, when Christ is faced with this question, he says, the greatest commandment 
is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And upon these two commandments are all the other commandments. All the other commandments. So what we find is that they are leaving their love of Christ, which then results in their love for each other. They have lost their first love, the thing that got them to why they are teaching in the first place and going into the depths of the gospel in the first place, which was their love for God, specifically even their love for Christ, which then develops into a love for each other. And so you have this duality going on with what their first love is. If their first love is Christ, then it manifests itself in their love for each other. Which means what? It means they are going into these depths of study and these depths of learning and the depths of, God's, of Christ's gospel while losing their love for Christ and each other. I have gained a reputation for not being very nice to seminary students. And the reason is, um, seminary students have a very strong love that got them there, usually. And that love is a love for ideas. They are zealous for ideas. I have entitled this sermon, I don't even know if that's a thing anymore or not, but I titled this sermon, Zealous for Ideas. And I see this in seminary students all the time. They are excited about the ministry because for them the ministry is a chance to, uh, to really explore and enjoy the thing they love the most, which is ideas. And so they start getting into these ideas of eschatology, pneumatology, uh, soteriology, and uh, theology proper, and anthropology, and all the ologies that are there, uh, they really love it. And they will talk your ear off about it. In fact, as they're talking to you about it, they don't even really care about your life. They will just keep talking about them, and how excited they are about what they're learning, because they can't wait for you to see how awesome it is that they know things and you don't. And the only thing that will break that terrible conversation with these guys is when they tell you, oh, I have to leave, I have to study for a Hebrew test. Did you hear that it was Hebrew? Uh, that's very important that you understand that I am about to leave and study for a test in Hebrew. And then you leave, and then they finally let you go and live your life again. Now, they're not all that way, obviously. There's some good ones. But I find that happens with regular people as well, people that aren't in seminary, people that are just people that are going to church. And they might even enjoy church at first, for a while, because they enjoy the ideas. I've seen this happen a lot of times. Young people will come into church, uh, particularly Presbyterian churches, because Pres Presbyterian churches are very strong on teaching. And they come in, they get all excited 
They, they uh, start debating people about theology. Everything gets really exciting. They get really involved, and then they disappear. Why does that happen? We see this happen all the time. I've seen it happen in churches uh, all over America. Because we live in a world where people love ideas. And they've gotten really excited about the idea of Christ. But they don't know who Christ is. And they certainly don't love Him. I have become convinced that young people's biggest problem um, you know, we, we as parents, um, we look at our kids, and uh, when you have little kids, everything seems to be okay, and you think, oh, I hope they become great you know, leaders of, of the church one day, I hope they become great godly men and women one day, and I know they will because uh, they obey, and, and what you realize what I realized is that they obey mostly because they're afraid of pain. That's why they obey. And that lasts only until they're big enough where pain doesn't matter anymore. They end up getting bigger than you. <laughs> and then what do you got? Uh, you, have this, you don't have fear anymore, so then what, what do you have left? Well, now you have kids that are wondering, well, why am I still obeying what interest do I have in obedience to my parents? What interest do I have in loving my parents? What interest do I have in my own life? And you realize very quickly that the biggest problem with young people today is, number one, they don't know who Christ is. Number two, they don't love Him. Um... When we talk about when we talk to teenagers, and I'm and I'm finding this out more and more, especially as I work more and more with college students, the issue is there is a version, an idea of Christ in a lot of their minds. The gay Christ, the feminist Christ, the Christ who uh, who allows some rule bending because that Christ knows how cool they are. Uh, the Christ that isn't interested in the Bible, but interested in how cool they are. It is a bizarre Christ, a Christ that is not Christ. And when you talk to young people about loving Christ, the Christ of the Bible, I am not sure they know what that means. If you look further on in here, after it says you have left your first love, and he says this is, the, this is the result of your lack of repentance. If you don't repent, I will remove you. Now what does he say after that? Yet, this you do have. That you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, or however you're supposed to pronounce that, I think. I, I tried to look it up, but it's weird. Um, which I also hate. So there is this group, um, and it's, uh, as I did the research on it, there was this guy named Nicholas who, um, to avoid uh, people being jealous of his wife, he, he would prostitute her out, and he would uh, then try and put a spiritual spin on that activity, and God hated that. 
and the Ephesian church hated it. There was a sense in which they were hating what God hated. You understand? So there were things that the church was, was looking at and hating what the church was hating. And I see this uh, in social media all the time where you have people that have a form of spirituality and they complain about the things that God hates too. Right? We see this in our, in our teenage kids that look out in the world and say, this is wrong, what is going on? And they hate the things that are going on in the world. And it's the same things that God hates. We might even in our church hate things that God hates. I hope as we look at, at Revoice, that we look at Revoice and we say, God hates that. And God is agreeing with us. I want you to notice all the things in your life and in my life that, I, that we're doing that seems like these are great things. And not even seems. Christ is saying, yes, this is right. You should hate the things I hate. And you should, you should go into the depths of the study of my gospel and hold firm to it. That's great. It's not that Christ is saying these things that you are doing, the depths of the knowledge that you are developing is bad. What you need is more feelings. He's saying the depths of the knowledge that you are putting your people into is great. And the things that you are noticing that are evil out there really are evil. And it is wonderful that you are agreeing with me as far as what I hate. But that doesn't change that you can do all of those things and begin to lose your first love. He continues to say after that, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. This is how he leaves us. If you overcome, if you persevere, right? We have to remember when it comes to uh, the tulip, right? In tulip, we like all the different parts of tulip, right? Uh, the total depravity and uh, you know the unconditional um, election and and the uh, atonement being specific atonement and all those things. But the P doesn't stand for if you say your the prayer right then you're saved, once saved, always saved. I mean, did we not grow up with that? Did you say the prayer? Uh, if you don't know the prayer, you can repeat after me, and if you say the prayer just right, you can write the date down in your Bible, and you are good! And that was kind of the centerpiece of Vacation Bible School, to make sure they say the prayer. And we kind of jump onto that and we kind of think that election means that there's nothing more in my salvation. When the P stands for perseverance, 
of the saints. Well, what does perseverance mean? It means there is a perseverance that we need to do that we could not do unless we were elect and Christ was doing the work in us to, sancti to sanctify us. But it certainly doesn't mean that the date on the inside of my Bible is how I get into heaven. What it means is, in your election, there is work. Read James. There is work to be done. And this perseverance of your salvation is done through Christ's work in you. And that's what we call sanctification. No, you can't lose your election. No, you can't lose your salvation. But your salvation is not a date in your Bible that you said the right thing at the right time and now you're good. It is a thing that requires perseverance. And this is what Christ is reminding us of through the Spirit. And it comes down to His challenge to that church that is doing all these great things that I wish we could even do, and there still it does not make Christ happy. What makes Christ happy is that all these programs and all these things that this church is doing stems from this love for Christ Himself. If I can put it this way, an affection. One of the most exciting things about becoming Reformed was, number one, the totality of Scripture finally started to make sense. It wasn't this, I don't know what to do with this end of the Bible, but this end of the Bible seems to apply to us. Um, it wasn't this big gap between the two. It wasn't this, uh, you know, they were doing this thing in the Old Testament, now we're doing this thing in the New Testament. Uh, it was the whole of Scripture had one thing to say, and it was Christ at the center. And that was exciting to me. But of course, that's an idea. Right? The excitement of our salvation in knowing what it means and being able to go through Romans and seeing the depth of our depravity and understanding the depth of our ingratitude to, to Christ, and that through the Holy Spirit, we are transformed. Our covenant is no longer under Adam, but it's under Christ. But these are all ideas. Okay? These are things that really happen, but our comprehension of them is a comprehension of them. What motivates our love for that comprehension of those things? In other words, as our men's group are, going, are finishing up John Owen, as we have in our Sunday schools, we're talking about biographies of people that have affected our church, uh, the, the church at, as a whole. As we talk about in men and family what it means, what Scripture tells us to be, to be men, what it means to be a woman, and how that works in a family. And as we talk about these things, you understand that the ideas of them isn't the thing that pushes us. 
Being able to get along at home shouldn't be the thing that pushes us to be better men at home and better women at home in our roles that, that Scripture has brought about. There is something deeper that should be driving what, what makes us love these ideas is the thing that is the core of loving our Christ. Do you have affection for Christ? We might be rich in knowledge and even rich in orthodoxy, but does the knowledge and orthodoxy stem from a desire to be right? And when we hear people that are wrong, our, our annoyances become engaged because they're wrong and we're right. Or does, does our annoyances uh, become engaged because of our love for Christ? I ask these things because there are evidences within our reform background that demonstrate when ideas become loved over our motivation for Christ, our love for Christ. It comes out when we talk about things that I do believe it's great to have a strong conviction over, but when they separate you from your brother, it tells me you love ideas. When we have a difficult time being in a presbytery that has brothers and sisters in our presbytery who, who believe that baptism should happen later, after a confession of faith, as opposed to a baptism that should happen because they're in a covenant family. If that becomes an issue to the point where we have a problem with being in the same presbytery as our brothers who are Baptists, we love ideas. Because the question is, do, if my affection for Christ motivates my affection for the ideas that come about from Christ. Because, and this is, and this is where I know that we're going to have uh, a misinterpretation. I want to stay with the text. The text says, the knowledge of these things and the teaching of the depths of these things is good. Jesus says it himself. This is great. This is a wonderful thing. You're doing a great job. I'm against you because these, this knowledge and all these things are not motivated by a love for me. Which then does what? It affects your love for whom? Each other. I have a hard time believing anyone who says they love Christ, but they have a hard time loving other people. When I see people that have a difficult time loving others, they don't have time for other people, or other people annoy them, or whatever it is, I ask the question, do they really love Christ? 
if their love for people is lacking. How does this develop in a church? We could have a church that has, pres- that, uh, has preserved itself in faithfulness and doctrine, even down to doctrinal nuance. We can have a church that hates the deeds of sinners, as God does. We can have a church that is uh, intentional about its work in spreading the knowledge of the gospel. But if these things are not motivated by a fundamental affection for Christ and who He is, then Christ is against us. He will unchurch us. How would this manifest itself? And like I've said before, uh, when I look at these things, I am uh, really speaking to me, but you're invited to listen. The... uh, the way we can love others sometimes comes down to just showing up. Um, when, we have, when we have a triple B, it stinks on a Friday night to give a Friday night up, especially with your, with your uh, family and things like that. But has it occurred to us to show up for the sake of somebody else? Maybe you feel that whatever we're studying there isn't something, you know, your mind might be a little more advanced and you think, well, this is kind of boring to me, but have you thought of showing up for the sake of your pastor? In the women's uh, Bible study, it's very hard to find time for that kind of thing, but have you thought of doing it to encourage your pastor's wife? Out of love for another person to encourage. Uh, even Sunday school. I've been convicted about being late for Sunday school so, so often. And, of course, it always starts off with, i got to get up a little early, so earlier, so I do. I get up a little earlier. But then, then you're like, oh, it's already that time. And I'm, Anyway. Um, and I, <laughs> I know I have a little further to drive, but, it, I mean, I could... I could discipline my family to get there sooner. And some of us can discipline ourselves to get there, period. You can be late for a while and then discipline yourself to get there earlier or later. Just show up, that'd be nice. But these kinds of things are ways that we can demonstrate our love for each other, even if we have determined that maybe we don't need all the ideas. That maybe... Maybe we're good on ideas, and this kind of this little program here is for ideas, and I'm 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 good on that. That it's not about ideas. That our love for the way we have been saved, the love for the way God has communicated His Word in Scripture, the love for how God has preserved His orthodoxy all the way from from the from those that we see in Scripture to now. The love we have for the Reformation, the love we have for these things are wonderful things to love, 
when they are motivated by our love for Christ. And you can always tell by the way you show your love for each other. And my concern for me is that I begin to study these things in a sense of love for my Christ. I would almost... And one of the things that made me think about this is that when I did that biography on Jim Elliott, I became very convicted. Because here's a guy, uh, most likely a dispensationalist, went to Wheaton. I mean, theologically, we're probably not on the same, same spectrum. But I think to myself, I would be willing to give up a lot of the education that I have had, if I could have the heart that Jim Elliott had. I mean, what use is this stupid PhD in theology and all the sacrifice and work for it if I don't love Christ to the point where I'm willing to give my life for a group of people that no one ever heard of and still doesn't know about and to take a spear to the chest for them because I love Christ more than I love my fame. And I love Christ more than I love all the collection of my ideas. And I love Christ more, and listen carefully to this, I love Christ more than my own family. Do I love Christ that way? Jim Elliott had a family. Don't you think it was reckless of him to go to a group of people that no one's ever heard of except for the fact that they kill people? I mean, he had a family. Shouldn't he have stayed back? Shouldn't he have just prayed for them? Or send a single guy? But he loved Christ I think. And I wonder if I'll ever love Christ that way. And here's a guy that hasn't obtained the PhD or hasn't obtained the glories and the richness of the Reformed faith. Man, he loved Christ so much. He had affection for Christ. And it's damning to me. And I think on many levels, as we, as we continue to grow as a church, we need to continue the things that Christ has said, this is great. Your pastor has been burdened about this. Your pastor has told you that we are a church that's strong on teaching. But he said, we're not doing so great on prayer. Fellowships. And he's really worried about our worship. Are you worried about these things? How, as a congregation, can we be a blessing to our pastor? How can we be a blessing as a church to our community? 
I mean, so many churches have gotten this so backwards. They say, how can we be a blessing to our community? Well, let's, let's think about how we can reach out to them. Or how can we do this? Or how can we do that? And we're thinking of, all, and they have all these strategies, strategies, strategies. And the strategies are motivated by what? Growth? People? Fame? How often are our strategies motivated by our affection for Christ? That this affection is so deep for Christ, we're willing to sacrifice a few things. Maybe even when something is said from the pulpit that kind of gnawed us the wrong way, or if we're really um, upset about it, we can really push it in a way that really offends us, do we have affection enough for Christ to say, it's okay? That maybe, maybe there's something I needed to hear. Maybe I don't need to keep defending myself and defending myself and defending myself. But rather, do I love Christ enough that I can love my brother, I could love my sister, my hope for us today is the hope I have for myself. That I can start thinking about my pursuit of Scripture and my pursuit of my prayer life is part of the way I can show my affection for my Christ. Because I don't think I've been loving Him. I really don't. I think I've been submerged in really deep, theological, robust ideas. And these ideas are great, they're wonderful ideas. But they don't mean anything. Christ can be against me. Do you understand this? I mean, this is the big, uh, the big moment that really has struck me, and I want it to strike you that all these really good things that are genuinely good don't matter if Christ is against us and he can be against us even though we're doing way better than that church across the street. Way better. Our doctrine is way more sound. We are way more intentional about loving each other and all these sort of things and trying to get people to understand the word of God and Christ can be against us and want to put our lampstand out. And it's because of the simple thing that I find in my own heart that I've betrayed Christ in not loving him so much that I'm interested in his scriptures, but I've loved the ideas so much that I've gotten interested in the scriptures, and I've forgotten all about him, which has made it very hard to love other people. It's been hard to love my family. It's been hard to love people I'm supposed to be serving. It creates within you this, this uh, self-defense that when something is said that really should be convicting you, you suddenly become someone that is ready to defend yourself. It has made me lazy and not want to go and encourage other people, even whether I feel I need that, that specific program or not. It has made me the most self-centered jerk I've ever seen and as long as I'm really polite, 
no one minds. <laughs> I mean, I can, as long as I'm polite to all of you, you think, what a great guy, because I'm so polite. But inside, I'm just doing all this stuff because I like ideas, and when the ideas start getting boring, I move on. And we've seen it with people that get excited about our church for like five or six Sundays, but when the ideas start getting boring, they want to move on. Or when the ideas start making them having to have some kind of sacrifice, they move on. Why? Because we don't have this affection for our Christ. We get caught up in all these little details, of all the stuff we're supposed to do, and the deeds are good, right? We really should be leading our homes, men, and maybe we're doing some really good things, but are we doing it because we have affection for Christ? I know I've been struggling with it. I know my family sees it, right? We can fake to all of us, but we can't fake to our family. And, and as your as your sons and daughters become teenagers, they become they get a really good snout for hypocrisy, don't they? A really good one. It's not so great to smell their own hypocrisy, but they can certainly see it in other people, right? And a lot of times they're right. And they see in us doing all these great deeds that really are good deeds, but we have forgotten our first love. They see it. We need to get back to the deeds that we did when our first love was our motivation for those deeds. Where we love Christ so much, we spanked our kids. When we loved Christ so much, we sacrificed things. We sacrificed a Friday night or a Tuesday night. Where we love Christ so much, we wanted to encourage each other when it was inconvenient to encourage each other. When we loved Christ so much, that thing that was said from the pulpit, we decided not to defend ourselves and see what Christ really had to do in our hearts. When we loved Christ so much, we paid attention to how much our pastor sacrifices for us, and we did the thing that congregations hate to do, we appreciated it. Right? We don't know what we have. We have been spoiled. Let us think about how we can love our Christ every day more and more. I think it's going to make a difference. I am... I don't want to say that it sounds mediocre to say I am humbled, but I guess I can put it this way. I'm humiliated by how little I have had affection for my Christ. And I hope, the hope we have is that the time is not over. Our church is beginning to grow. Wouldn't it be great to be known as that church that has great affection for Christ. and That's why they believe what they believe. They're not a bunch of arrogant people that are really good at ideas, but we don't know or love our Christ.